close us with a worship song so we can go out and enjoy some family time. I have a party today at my house uh, for my daughter who graduated yesterday from Franklin High School. We have others who graduated from Franklin High School, Centennial High School, Page High School. So a lot of graduations going on, a lot of weddings going on right now, more weddings to come. This is, summer is my favorite time. Are we technically in summer yet? We're still in spring a little bit. When does summer hit? Well, well, this is my favorite time of year, when it's warm. Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you turn over to Genesis chapter 28? Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you make a difference in our lives. Matter of fact, we all testify and declare that you are the difference in our lives. Thank you that we've been born again. That we were born naturally dead in trespasses and in sin, but you allowed us to be born again of spiritual birth through the sacrifice of your darling son, Jesus. And as we sang today, through him we overcome. Death has no victory over us. Anxiety and stress in this world, even Satan himself, has no power over your children because we are in you and you are in us. We thank you that it's sealed, that it's done, that when Jesus said it is finished, it was paid in full. And we thank you, Lord, for the fact that you drew us in by your love. and You have transformed and you are transforming us every day by your grace and by your mercy and by your truth. So now, Lord, as we continue this wonderful interaction with you, we need for you to speak through your word. I pray, Lord, that I would not encumber the transaction today between what you want to say to your people and what your people need to hear. Help me to be a mouthpiece. Help me to be a conduit of grace. Help me to use the gifts and the abilities and the talents that you've given me coupled with our study time, to say something that can impact the life of one or every person in this place. And we promise, Lord, to give your name the praise for whatever nugget of truth that we would receive today. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As a pastor, I have to cover any number of topics uh, on any given year. I have to be consistent to speak the whole counsel of God. And every year without fail, I need to talk about money. Oh boy. A lot of times we don't want to hear about money. We don't want to hear preachers talk about money because it can seem so self-serving, especially with all of the hypocrisy and the abuses and misuses that churches have done with the Lord's money taken from the Lord's people. Nevertheless, I still need to be able to talk about money just as much as we need to have regular tune-ups about marriage, about purity, about Bible study, discipleship. We all need tune-ups, and we need tune-ups when it comes time to talk about money. But I've learned over the years how to talk about money without talking about money. It's kind of like Bruce Lee in the Enter the Dragon movie. I'm a Bruce Lee fan, and uh, this guy walks up to him, and he picks a fight with Bruce Lee, and he wants to see Bruce Lee's skill, and he says, what skill or style 
do you use? And Bruce Lee calls it the art of fighting without fighting. And so he ended up tricking the guy and sending the guy out on a boat. And he was able to fight and defeat the guy without actually using his hands. And so as a preacher, I need to be able to preach about money without preaching about money. And so the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom. And I have learned over the course of many years in ministry, but above all, being a disciple of Jesus, that it's really not about the money. It's about our hearts. As a matter of fact, we've been learning the last two weeks that when the Bible talks about money, it's not really talking about money, but our hearts. With God, it's never about money. It's always about our hearts because once God has our hearts, he has everything. Is that true? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if your heart is in the kingdom, your treasure will be in the kingdom. But if your heart is not in the kingdom, your treasure will not be in the kingdom. As Jesus does with so many topics, he makes everything so simple. It's so simple. It's a heart issue, not a money issue. So the question we always need to ask is, does God have our heart? Does he have it today? Does he have it in this moment? Does he have it right now? And so today I want to continue in this series, giving you the best that I got by preaching a message entitled, The Heart of the Patriarchs. The Heart of the Patriarchs. Now, a patriarch is a spiritual father. And for our Judeo-Christian faith, the patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're going to look at two of those patriarchs in particular today, but we'll focus primarily on Jacob. So in Genesis chapter 28, I'll begin reading at verse 10 from the New King James Version. And the Bible says, now, Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. Let's stop and talk about that for a minute. Jacob, whose name means supplanter or trickster, uh, heel grabber. Remember, he and Esau were twins. And when they came out of the womb, Esau was covered in red hair. He came out first, but Jacob came out holding on to his brother's heel. And so that was a prophetic word that he would always be on the heels of his brother, even supplanting or taking his brother's place because there was a prophecy about the twins in the womb that the younger would be greater than the older, which goes against all of the culture and the history of that time because the older child got the birthright and the blessing, but God said that the younger one would supplant. He would take the place of the older one. Jacob would be over Esau. But that was not necessarily lived out in time and space, whereby Esau accepted and understood that. As a matter of fact, it's as if uh, their mother kept that information to herself and didn't even share it with her husband Isaac concerning what God said, that the younger would lead the older. Nevertheless, the boys grow up, and you know that uh, Esau is a man of the field, and he likes to hunt. Jacob is a man of the tents. He's a homebody. He, he likes to be around mom. And so therefore their home was divided and even dysfunctional because dad loved Esau because he was a hunter. That boy went outside, played football in the street with no pads and all that stuff. Man, he's, he's rough. But mama, she loved Jacob because he was mild mannered and he helped out around the house. 
And so their home was dysfunctional because the parents played favorites with their children. And whenever we do that as parents, we are setting our families up for a fall. We should love all our children the same, recognizing that they're all different. But we should love them all the same. Nevertheless, with this family, there was dysfunction. And Jacob, being the tricky guy that he was, he was able to get his brother's birthright when his brother came in from the field famished. So you know the story. He traded his birthright for some soup. And he despised his birthright because he was only thinking in the moment, saying, I want to eat now. But then later, Jacob went in and got the blessing, the blessing for the eldest son by disguising himself in the clothes of his brother Esau. Because Isaac, their dad, was old, his eyes were dim, and it was time for him to impart the blessing on his oldest son, which he thought was going to be Esau. But mama said, boy, you better sneak in there, Jacob, and get this blessing, because that's what God told me, that you were to lead. So he puts on Esau's clothes and he puts goat skins on his hands to act like hair. And again, you know the rest of the story. And he ends up getting the blessing that carried on from Abraham to Isaac. Now it's coming to Jacob. Well, when Esau found out about it, he was livid. He was angry to the point where he wanted to kill his brother Jacob because he said, he tricked me out of my birthright and now he is has deceived dad to take the blessing from me. And so the Bible says that Esau nursed a grudge in his heart, waiting until his parents died so that he could kill his brother. Well, mama found out about what was in Jacob Esau's heart because when you have murder in your heart, it's going to come out of your mouth and you start talking about what you're going to do because as a person thinks, so are they. They're going to talk about what's in their heart. And she hears about his plan that he's comforting himself with the thought of killing his brother. And you know, since he's out there killing animals and stuff, ain't going to be no problem killing his brother up in here. So mama says, boy, you need to take off. And so she goes to Isaac and she says, I don't want Jacob to get a wife from the Canaanite women around here. Let's send him back to my homeland in Haran to get a wife. So Isaac says, okay, he blesses him and he sends him off. So as we read verse 10, Jacob is leaving under these circumstances. He's fleeing from the fury and the wrath of his brother Esau. He does not want to be killed. But he is also going to Haran so that he can get himself a wife. He is possibly 40 years old at this time. So now it's time for him to go and get himself a wife. So he's going to take the journey to find her. But not only that, the Bible lets us know that when he leaves the house, making this probably 500-mile trek, back to Mesopotamia, back to the Ur of the Chaldees, to the land of Haran, he only has in his possession the clothes on his back and the staff in his hand. The Bible says that in Genesis chapter 32, verse 10, he talks about when he crossed over the Jordan, all he had was his staff in his hand. So he doesn't have much as he's stepping out. Verse 28, uh, chapter 28, verse 11, it says, So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Verse 12, then he dreamed, 
And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So my man has one of those Fred Flintstone pillows made out of stone, and he has a dream that night, and he has a vision, and he sees this ladder. And this ladder has its base on the earth, but also it stretches into the heavens, and it has angels going down it and angels going up it. And, and he's having this dream. Now, we know as we look in the New Testament that Jesus was saying that he was the fulfillment of that vision and that dream that Jacob saw that day. Because Jesus said to Nathaniel in John chapter 1, verse 51, he said to Nathaniel, you're going to see heaven open. And you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so when you read Genesis 28, it connects with Jesus, which is why we need to be people who read the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because whatever is not clear in the Old Testament usually bring, has clarity brought to it in the New Testament. The Old Testament concealed, the New Testament revealed. And so Jacob sees a vision of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He has a messianic dream. What's the point? He sees this ladder, and it could be translated from the Hebrew as a stairway, kind of what was used back in those days on these buildings called ziggurats, where they would have steps ascending uh, up these uh, structures. And so he sees this stairway, our vernacular ladder. And when it is on the earth, that speaks of humanity. It's in the heaven which speaks of deity. So this ladder is both God and man. And the Messiah, the deliverer, our Savior, he has to be man in order to be tempted like each and every one of us and to die for humans. But he also has to be God in order for his payment to matter. And so Jesus is the God-man. The angels coming down speaks of the birth of Jesus when the angels announced his birth. The angels ascending this ladder. When Jesus ascended back to heaven, the angels were there as the heavenly host surrounding the Son of God. So what he sees that day is a vision, an image of Jesus Christ. And so he says later that this place is the gate of heaven. Why is it the gate of heaven? Because you can't get to heaven unless you come through the ladder or the stairway, Jesus Christ. No one can go from earth to heaven apart from coming through the door, coming through the ladder, Jesus. And I just want to ask and make sure, do I have people in this house who are going from earth to heaven because they've taken the stairway named Jesus Christ? You can't get there by works. You can't get there because you know somebody. You can't get a hookup on that day. You've got to know Jesus for yourself because he is the stairway to heaven. He is. See, some of y'all know that, but some of y'all don't. But don't worry about that. Jesus is the way to heaven. Then in verse 13, it says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give to you and your descendants. Oh, more uh, beauty here in the scripture here as far as topography. Uh, we see a type here. We see the father standing over the ladder. 
because Jesus is the one who gets you to the Father. No man comes to the Father unless they come through me, the door, the ladder. The Father is standing over his son, and he reveals to Jacob, I am the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. It's interesting that in the Hebrew culture, there is no word for grandfather. And so the grandfather is technically seen as the father of the grandchildren, and on and on. He goes on to say to him that the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Verse 14, also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and to the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This sounds familiar because this is a rehashing of the covenant that God first made with Abraham. God made this same covenant with Abraham, he makes it with Isaac, and now he's making it with Jacob, the patriarch. There are three things that are affirmed in this covenant that God made with the patriarchs. Number one, there's going to be land given to you. We know it as the land of Canaan, the land of promise. God is saying, I'm going to give it to you. And then this covenant involves descendants. Where they'll be greater than the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky, that these Hebrew people, these Jewish people, they're going to be innumerable. You know what I'm trying to say. He's going to have a whole lot of them. But I find it interesting that when God made this promise and called this man Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and then came Isaac and then Jacob, he gives them all this promise that they're going to have a lot of children. But each one of the patriarchs' wives had trouble delivering children. Sarah was barren. Rebecca was barren. And now Rachel is barren. And I could hear these guys saying, Lord, if you're calling me to be the father of a great nation, why is it that you didn't take care of this thing with my wife being barren? Now, Alvin Pearman and Kristen do not have a problem with barrenness because they just look at each other and have children. She puts her head down right now. But I'm here to tell you, Abram is like now... Sarah can't have children. Isaac is like, Rebecca can't have children. Then the wife that Jacob will marry, Rachel, she can't have children. What do we learn from this? That just because God calls you to do something, it doesn't mean that there won't be obstacles in the way. But a lot of times we give up, don't we? We get the obstacle and we question the calling. No, 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 no. You hang in there because when God calls you, he will do it. It just may take a long time. For Abram, his wife didn't conceive until after 20 five years. And then when Isaac got married at the age of 40, his wife was barren. The scripture says he pleaded for her to have children. He talked to God and God answered that prayer 20 years later. And so I I don't know what you're going through. You may have to wait for what God has put in your spirit to manifest, but don't you dare give up on the calling. Don't you dare look at the obstacle and say, it cannot be done. You hold on to the promise of God. You keep on pressing, even if you don't see it right now. As my elder said, we got to live and walk by faith. He said it, I'm going to believe it. It may not come when I want it, but I do know he's going to come on time. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. So this covenant involved land, it involved descendants, and it also involved a blessing. God said that I'm going to bless every family on the face of the earth through the Jewish people. 
And that's speaking primarily of the written word. We have the Bible today because the oracles came through Israel, the prophets. We have the Bible from Jewish people. But beyond the written word, above all, we've got the living word who comes through the Jewish people, who blesses every family on the face of the earth. Salvation is for the Jew first, but thank God it's also for the Gentile. So Jesus is the one who blesses every family on the face of the earth. Those who will come to God by faith in Jesus will be part of the great throng in heaven that will be around the throne, worshiping him from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue. Thank God that this blessing is for everybody, and he is affirming his covenant with Jacob. Verse 15, God says, behold, I am with you. He said the same thing to Abraham. He says, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. Let me stop and pause right here. Did Jacob deserve this covenant? Did he deserve this blessing from God? Absolutely not. He didn't deserve it any more than you and I deserve it because we have fallen. We are sinful people. What we do deserve is wrath, but he's a merciful God, and he gives us what we do not deserve, and he blessed him. He hooked him up. This is a sneaky man, a tricky man, but God said, I'm still going to be with you, and I'm going to bless you in spite of yourself because technically this isn't about you. It's about me. It's always about me and I'm going to use you anyhow if you'll just walk with me. And then he says, I will not leave you, Jacob, until I have done what I have spoken to you. Verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Verse 17, and he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? When you see the glory of God, your mouth just hangs open and it's like, oh. You're awestruck because of his awesome power. And so there's this fear, this reverence for God. And he says, this is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Verse 18, then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. I'm here to let you know, if you're looking for Jesus in the Old Testament, you can find him. Now, he may not just jump right off the pages at you like you see him in the Gospels, but man, if you keep looking, you'll find him in all kind of metaphors and images. Well, this rock that was at the head that Jacob laid on, this is a picture of Jesus, just like the ladder was a picture of Jesus, because Jesus is the rock of our salvation. And as he poured oil on this rock, it speaks of Christ being the anointed one. He is the anointed rock. And that's why he says in verse 19, He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been loosed previously. Why Bethel? Bethel means house of God. Beth, house, El, God. House of God. And he's going to set this pillar up as the foundation for the house of God. Who is the foundation of the house of God? Jesus. Who is the stone that the builders rejected, but Jacob accepted? It's Jesus. Who is the anointed one in the house? It's Jesus. Where is the gate of heaven found? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. From the Old Testament in the New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. My God, thank you, Lord. So verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God be with me and keep me in this way that I am going 
and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on. What he's saying is, Lord, if you'll be with me, that's your presence. Lord, if you'll keep me, that's your protection. Lord, if you'll give me what I need, that's your provision. Verse 21, so that I come back to my father's house in peace. Because I'm going out in stress right now. Don't really know where I'm going. But God, if, 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 if you bring me back in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Hang with me here. Because I'm going to ask a question in a moment. Why did Jacob make a vow. Look at verse 22. It says, and this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Oh, boy. What is going on as I work this message to a close? Well, I got a couple of questions, and Dante, this is how I learned the Bible. I just ask questions of it. And then I do inductive Bible study and try to find the answer to those questions. And before I consult a commentary, I'm first talking to the Lord and I'm reading the Bible because the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. And so I start working through. So, son, when you start preaching, you know that. Oh, yes. Only if the Lord says so, son. Only if the Lord says so. So I got a couple of questions. Number one, why did Jacob make a vow? Well, he made a vow because his relationship with God was weak, if it even existed. He's 60 years old. He grew up in a Christian home with a Christian grandfather, but it doesn't appear that he has his own relationship with God because it's not going to really develop until he's tested and I'm afraid a lot of, of our kids, they grow up in the comforts of a Christian home. And they know the right things to say, but until we get tested, we don't really know whether or not Jesus is ours and we belong to him. You know, so, so a lot of times it's head knowledge. And so God is going to allow this wilderness so he can marry this man out in this wilderness, so they can get close together out in this wilderness. So now this vow means he's about to strike a deal with God. He's about to make a deal with God. If you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. And this is what people do who don't know God as Papa, who don't know God as their Father, who don't know God as their Savior. They try to bargain with God. If you get me out of jail, I promise that I'm going to serve you. <laughs> if you uh, allow me to pass this class, I promise I'll do this. Because when you start bargaining with God like that, it's just uh, an indicator that your relationship with him is more works-based than faith-based. It, it may show that you may not really know God. It's like that person out there in the world, and I've heard all these, uh, like P. Diddy. If you get me out of this trial that I'm in, when he was in some kind of shooting trial, then he's talking about, man, I'm going to go to church every Sunday. Then when God get him out that thing, church don't see him no more. You know, that's what happens. People make these vows. Lord, if she's not pregnant, I promise I'll stay faithful to my wife. Lord, if you give me this job, I promise you I'm going to start tithing at church. Then when you get the job, what happened to the tithe? So we make these kind of vows, and that's what's going on between the Lord and Jacob or Jacob and the Lord. And I know that we have been there before from time to time. When our faith gets weak, we start making these vows to God. Lord, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. 
Right now, Jacob has nothing, but he vows. Second question is, why did Jacob offer to tithe? Because the brother recognized, again, I don't have anything. So if you give me something, I'm going to give it back to you. I don't have anything but the clothes on my back and the staff in my hand. So he uh, promises to tithe. Now, my third question is, where did he learn about tithing? Hang with me now. Where did he learn about tithing? Well, he learned it from his grandfather, Abram, in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. When Abram had went out to rescue Lot at the battle of the kings, and he was able to get a lot of possessions from the people that God gave him the strength to defeat. So when he came back, he meets this type of Christ in the Old Testament called Melchizedek who is the prince of Salem or the prince of peace. And he comes with bread and wine, the body and blood. He comes, he has no beginning, he has no end. He is a priest. Melchizedek is a priest, and there is no official priesthood yet because Aaron hadn't even been born. Uh, Aaron is still in the uh, uh, bowels of Abram, his father. And so this Melchizedek is a type of Christ. And when Abram sees him, he voluntarily gives him a tithe of all that God just graciously, graciously allowed him to possess. And Melchizedek received what Abram gave. And so the grandson learned from the grandfather about how to give a tithe or a tenth to God. So watch this. Before tithing was mandated, for the Jews, it was a natural response to the kindness of God. It was a natural response because God gave Abram everything that he had, so he gave it back. What Jacob is about to experience, he said, if you give it to me, I'll give it back. It's a natural response to the kindness of God. Now, a lot of Christians come along today and they like to, you know, these are stingy Christians. They don't want to talk about giving. So what they quickly say is, we're not under the tithe. We're not under the tithe. I don't have to get 10%. And some of you may be some of them stingy people with that unbiblical argument to, to just support your carnality and your selfishness and your materialism. Oh, my goodness. And they'll say, we're not under the tithe. We're under grace. Well, let me say this to you. Christians are not obligated to tithe. You got that right. Because it's impossible to tithe. There isn't a temple we aren't agrarian people where we're bringing uh, our uh, crops to God. Most of y'all aren't farmers around here where you're bringing bulls and all that stuff to God. So it's not possible to tithe under Old Testament qualifications. It's not necessary to tithe because when Jesus died on the cross, that system also died as well of trying to relate to God on the basis of these animal sacrifices when Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice as the Lamb of God. So we have access into the presence of God through Jesus, but that does not cause us to lose any responsibility in terms of giving financially to God. So who, people say, we're not under the tithe. You need to check yourself because although we're not obligated to tithe, Christians are still obligated to give. Uh, let the wall say amen. Let the light say amen. We are still obligated to give. We are obligated to give to God financially. We're not asking you to bring a ram, a goat, a dog, or your children and lay them up here. Some of y'all would say, I'm first in line to bring my kids up there. No, 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 this ain't that kind of thing here. 
but we are all obligated to give financially in order to honor God and to advance his kingdom on earth primarily through the local church. He's the head over everything to the church. But what we do is we take what belongs to God and we give it to parachurch ministries. Now, give parachurch ministries something, but that ain't the church that Jesus is the head of. This is the place that Jesus is the head of, dynamically and specifically to the local church. And because some people like to control the tithe so that they can control the glory. Now, now a lot of times we don't want to give in church because if I give in church, I can't control where the tithe goes. But if I give it over here to a parachurch, I kind of can't control where it goes and I can get a pat on my back. Now, again, give to the parachurch ministry, but don't neglect the local church. So we should tithe. We should give God at least 10% of our gross income, not the net, the gross income. We should, in our giving, Start with a tithe and launch from a tithe as we grow in the grace of giving. But man, I've had so many conversations, especially with my reformed brothers and sisters, that we don't need to tithe. They must have a lot of wealthy people that go to their churches that keep them open who, who have their hearts touched. But I don't understand how they're able to make it when so many people in these reformed churches full of grace don't give. Oh, let me get off that soapbox and move back over here because I know I'm probably going to make somebody mad, but who cares? I remember a couple years ago, I scared Strong Tower Bible Church when I preached about tithing. I don't do this stuff anymore. I did this when I was younger, when I had all this zeal and all this fire and vigor. Now I'm old. I don't do all that stuff. But this is what I used to do. I put up on the stage a big uh, uh, blackboard, and I covered it. I preached about tithing, and I said, behind me on this covered blackboard are the names of people in our church who do not tithe. And I said, I'm going to reveal it at the end of my sermon. Nobody paid attention to the sermon. They all sitting there, oh, boy, my name on the board is my name on the board is my name on the board. I get to the end of the sermon. I come over to the board, and I say, you know what? I'm not going to pull this back, but because there were no names written on it. But if you thought your name was on that board. You and the Lord need to have a talk about your giving. For those of you who give, yeah, yeah, pull it back. The givers are like, yeah, expose those folk that's in here getting a free ride on the Lord's grace. Come on now, expose them folk. How did Jacob learn? He learned from his grandfather. How are our kids going to learn? They got to learn from us. If we don't teach them how to tithe and how to give from a paper route to cutting grass to McDonald's, whatever job they get, they will not give. Why? Because like us, they are naturally selfish. And so we got to teach them that it's not about them. You see, the baby boomer generation, got a few of you gray heads in here who were born from uh, 1946 to 1964 post-World War II, you grew up in the church with a mindset to give. Now you were influenced by legalism, but still you gave anyway. Then there was the Generation X, those born from the 1960s to the 1980s. That's me. We were also taught about tithing. If me and Dorena don't do anything else, we're going to tithe. We may not have a lot of savings, but we're going to tithe to the Lord. And he's the one that takes care of us when ain't nothing in the savings because we know that he opens up the windows of heaven and pours out blessings we don't have room to receive. 
We're working on the savings, but we will not stop tithing and even giving more than a tithe to the Lord, my God. Thank you. And then there's the Generation Y, also known as millennials. These are the people born from the 80s to the 2000s. They're a little indifferent about giving. They don't trust the church. They've seen all kinds of abuses. And then there's Generation Z, people born 2000 to the present. You ain't getting nothing out of them right now because they're so engrossed in their video games and technology. And the kingdom of God is suffering because we're stingy. But I'm here to say that when God touches your heart, your hands open up. If your hands are closed with finances, he ain't touched your heart yet. But when he touches your heart, boom, your hands open. And you recognize that, man, I'm not going to give anything to God that he didn't first give to me. So when Jacob makes this vow to God that I'm going to give a tenth back to you, he's basically saying, I'm going to give back to you what's already yours. It's yours anyway. I don't have anything but my staff. So whatever you give me, it's all yours. And I'm going to give you a tenth back to let you know that I know that you gave me all of this stuff. So I don't know what you make, 10000 a year, $10 million a year. You need to learn the joy, the grace of giving to God at least 10% of all that he has given to you. And from there, let's launch, let's grow in our giving to God. And the proof that it's not your stuff, because the Bible says the earth is the Lord's, and everything that's in your house is his. The proof that it's not yours is that when you die, there will not be a thing in your hand. You are going out the same way you came in, the same way Jacob left to go with nothing. You're going out naked just like you came in with nothing. Now, they could try to bury you sitting on top of a motorcycle, but believe me, they ain't putting that motorcycle down in the ground. Somebody in your family going to ride off with that motorcycle after they take you out of the uh, funeral home. Some of your family members will come up and take jewelry off your hand, off your finger. Don't play with some of y'all family members. You ain't taking that stuff with you. You're going, and, and the proof that it's not yours and that it's God's is that God is going to burn all his stuff up with an eternal bonfire because the world is going to be destroyed by fire. That's how much he thinks about this stuff that we keep trying to hold on. God says it's my stuff, and since it's my stuff, I'm going to burn it all up. So why am I focused on stuff that's going to burn up? Why am I focused on stuff that I can't take with me that has no eternal value? So when he says, give me a tenth, I'm like, that's all? A tenth? Yeah, Chris, live off the 90. Give me 10. Oh, we got to grow up, church. We got to grow up. Hmm. So here's my final question. Did Jacob honor his vow? Because, you know, we make them vows. And as soon as we get free, we forget the vow that we made. And the Bible warns against that in the book of Ecclesiastes. The Bible says, don't make a vow and not pay it. For God has no delight in people who make vows and break them. God keeps his word, and he expects us to keep our word. So when you make a vow, even if it's a financial vow, a, a purity vow, whatever kind of vow you make, you got to keep it. And the question is, as I close, did Jacob keep his vow? Well, look at Genesis 33, verse 19. No, verse 18. Then Jacob came safely. Now, this is at least 20 years 
20 years after he made the vow at Bethel. At least 20 years. And he's coming back, and he's got four wives, 13 children, at least 12 at this point. He's coming back with all of these kids, all these possessions. The Bible says he came safely to the city of Shechem, which is the land of Canaan. When he came from Padan Aram and he pitched his tent before the city and he bought the parcel of land. Oh, he got some money now. He bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Verse 20. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel. Pastor, did he fulfill his vow? Well, the Bible doesn't say explicitly, but it does imply that he did. How do you know that? Well, he names the place El El or God, God of Israel. Jacob's name had been translated or changed into Israel after he had an encounter with the man, capital M, Jesus, wrestling with him. Jesus changed his name from heel snatcher and tricky to the one who wrestles with God and prevails. So he's coming back with a new identity. He's even got a new walk because he's got a limp because Jesus touched his hip. He's coming back as a new man with a new family with new money. He comes back into the promised land and he builds an altar to God, the God of Israel, or my God. I am Israel. He is my God. When I left out of here, I wasn't so sure. But now I walk with him through the wilderness. He is my God. And I look at all these goats and camels and all these people that I got. God kept his word towards me. He kept me. He provided for me. And so I'm going to keep my word to him. So when I build this altar, I am going to take from the best of my animals, my flock, and I'm going to give it back to God as an offering, a sweet-smelling aroma to my king. He kept his vow. What about you? Will you keep your vow? Lord, I tell you what, if I can just get these bills paid, I promise I'm going to start tithing. Lord, if you get me out of this sick bed, I promise I'm going to start going back to church every Sunday. Lord, if you do this for me, I'm going to do that for you. Well, people who have been touched by God want to do for God. So if you haven't done for God yet, it may be that he hasn't touched you yet. Or you're closing up your heart so that he can't get to it. I'm here to say open up your arms the same way Jesus opened his arms up to die for you. Open up your arms to him and say, Lord, all that I am, here I am. Take me, Lord. Take everything that I got and watch out. He will do more with your life than you ever could trying to do it on your own. I am a witness. So I encourage you that if you're not a giver, become a giver. Grow in the grace of giving. Find out what this joy is. And before you go on vacation, make a commitment to give to God and not take what's his on your vacation. Ah. That happens at churches. You know, most churches struggle during the summer because people are gone and so is their offering. Why does that happen? Because we're inconsistent. We're, we're conditional. But God says be consistent, mature, grow up. For almost 19 years now, I have seen God do great things in the life of the giver as well as in the life of the church that receives the gifts in Jesus' name. We have never gone without a bill paid. We have never gone without seeing our staff paid. We have never gone without having our needs met. 
No, we're not flossing and got bags of money around here. But man, he meets the need. He meets the need. He is faithful. He is faithful. He is good. He is God. He works it out. And as he does it in this house, there are testimonies of people who say, he does it in my house. I don't know how we make it. I don't know what's, but I'll tell you what, I give to God and he keeps on giving to me. People walk up to me giving me food. People walk up to me giving me services. And that comes from God. He's just opening up windows of heaven and pouring it out on his people. If you have never experienced that, oh my, you've got to jump in the stream and come get some of this. Let's pray. Oh God, it's never about the money. It's always about the heart. And when you know that we've surrendered our hearts to you today, tomorrow, again and again, Lord, you do great things. But how can you be God in our lives if we're so busy being God? We're trying to keep ourselves. We're trying to provide for ourselves. And then we may nod to you from time to time, but God, no. It's all about you. It's all yours. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture. And if you don't make us lie down beside still waters and lead us in green pastures, Lord, we will not make it. We know your voice. Shepherd Jesus, lead us, Lord, in our going out and our coming in. I pray for the person that has made a vow saying, Lord, I need a job. Lord, I haven't been a good steward of your resources, but I promise because I'm broken right now, I'm making a vow that, Lord, when you get me back on my feet, I promise to budget your money. I promise to save your money, to give your money to spend your money in a way that pleases you. Lord, would you honor that person's prayer right now? And Lord, as I close, I do want to pray for those who've been waiting on you to do something. As we heard from the patriarch, sometimes it takes time for you to manifest what you put in our spirit. Lord, may that person, those people, not grow weary in well-doing. May they not be tempted if they're in an adoption process to keep your money away from you, to put it into the adoption. May, may they not cut corners. We as a church, may we not cut corners. Yeah, there are things we need to do, but may we never neglect the poor around us. May we always be a generous church, never hoarding the stuff that comes through our fingers. May, may our hands be open. May we dispense what you give us trust Lord that if we don't have it it may be that we don't need it we love you Lord take all my mumble jumble and may your spirit make sense to your people may they hear what you wanted them to hear today thank you Lord we love you continue to bless us to be a blessing as you did Abraham Isaac and Jacob for we pray all this in Jesus name and for his sake amen amen somebody Amen, amen, amen. Stand to your feet, stand to your feet. We're going to sing a couple of verses of this. Then Nicole is going to close us in prayer. And we encourage you to go out into the world and love on folk in the name of Jesus.